Well, no doubt you've heard at least something about Harley-Davidson's entry into the adventure motorcycle community with their new motorcycle, the Pan America. Now, we don't normally cover new models on this show, normally, but this isn't just a new model. This is a brand new company to our market. And Harley-Davidson has not ever been associated with adventure motorcycling and certainly hasn't been associated with any sort of dirt riding for many, many, many years. So just what does this mean to us in the ADV community? Why is Harley coming on board now? What are their plans? And, and how might this whole thing affect us even if we're not riders of Pan America motorcycles or Harley-Davidson adventure bikes? Well, we wanted to talk to people who know, so we called up Harley-Davidson themselves. We got the chief engineer of the Pan America project and their PR manager. Both have been with Harley for a long time now, and both have their heart on the pulse of the Pan America project. To get an outside view of what this means to our industry, we have industry insider and power sports professional Tim Calhoun. Tim's been on the show before. He's uh, on the board of directors for the Motorcycle Industry Council and is the chairperson for the aftermarket committee at the MIC. He's also the vice president of sales for Quinn Helmets. All that coming up today. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Before we get started, I want to thank these fine companies that helped get this episode out today. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Jansen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Harley-Davidson has just made a huge leap into another market, our market, one that few could have ever imagined that this big American motorcycle company would make. As I said in the intro, we we don't normally cover new models of motorcycles, but this one is different. Harley-Davidson is well known for its cruiser scene, for those big, heavy thumping engines, leather jackets, all of that stuff that goes along with that Harley image. But as you know, and I know, Adventure motorcycling is is kind of a different animal, so to speak. Kind of like, I think, downhill skiing to cross-country skiing. Both on skis, but sort of different experiences and often different people doing each activity. So how do you come from the cruiser side with a company that is steeped in culture of just that, that cruiser highway riding culture? How does Harley come to adventure motorcycling? And what are they hoping for? And how deep are they willing to go with this? As you know, with Adventure Rider Radio, we like to speak to experts in the field. And the experts for Harley-Davidson, of course, are the people that worked on the Pan America project in particular, because that's what we're talking about here. So first off, we have Group Chief Engineer for Vehicle Platforms at Harley-Davidson, Mike Case. Case is a lifelong motorcyclist. He spent his entire career in the automotive and the power sports industry and for the past 19 years at Harley-Davidson. He oversaw the team that brought the Pan America's new engine, that's a brand new engine they have in this thing, called the Revolution Max engine to life. 
The other person we're going to speak with is Paul James. Paul has worked in the power sports industry his entire career. He's worked as a journalist in the snowmobile industry. He's worked for Arctic Cat. And for the past 23 years, he's been at Harley-Davidson. James has held a variety of roles at Harley-Davidson, including marketing and PR and event planning, etc. But he is currently the Senior Manager of Public Relations, and he's an avid rider and racer. All right. Hello. Uh, Mike Case, um, the Chief Engineer at Harley-Davidson, worked on the Pan America vehicle, uh, coming to you from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And Paul James, also from Milwaukee, been with Harley-Davidson for 23 years in a variety of marketing roles. I'm currently the PR manager for Harley-Davidson. Mike and Paul, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks Thank for having you. us. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with me. I know you're really busy and I know you're, you're both working from home too. That's, I mean, are you used to that now? <laughs> it's been a year. You'd think we'd be used to it, but it is, <laughs> it is still strange. Uh, I think I've been to the PDC a couple of times in uh, the last year and both those opportunities were to ride Pan America. Um, and I've been to my office at Juno Avenue, maybe a couple of times. So otherwise at home. Wow. Yeah, for me, I get in probably two or three days a week, um, and it is strange, but um, you got to get into the, you know, into the development center and check on bikes, ride bikes, look at parts, watch tests. So I'm in and out. Well, I want to start off here with just just the basic concept of uh, the the Harley-Davidson Pan America. This is a a 1250cc adventure motorcycle, the first adventure motorcycle for Harley-Davidson entering the the market. Um, But where does this come from? Like back up to way before, you know, you're talking design and and everything. Where does the idea to enter a completely different market come up for Harley-Davidson? Well, Michael, I'll kick this off and then you can jump in at this comes from a lot of market research. It comes from us understanding an opportunity and really digging deeply into it. We did more consumer research in this space than I believe we'd ever done uh, in our in our company history. And that in, entailed speaking to customers from around the world, one-on-one in some cases, going into their garages, talking to them about the motorcycles that they own the adventure riding experience, what they loved about their bikes and what they didn't love about their bikes. And we did a lot of competitive benchmarking and I'll I'll let Michael speak to that because that's really more on the engineering side in terms of understanding the space and, uh, and our competitors in the space. So it came from consumer research and from the belief that we have an opportunity space. Yeah. One of the cool things when I came onto the project was you know, our partners in marketing had a whole uh, set of PowerPoints, data, videos that, you know, Paul mentioned on interviews. And so as a new member, this is now years ago, you get this immersion into what the customer was looking for. And, um, and so every person who was on this project went through this, um, it was about a two or a four hour kind of immersion into the segment, into the customer base, understanding the customer. Um, and so I've never been on a project that had this amount of like 
kind of real world input into an engineer. Um, you know, we look on techs and specs and things like this, but this was like life in, in the day of or in the life of a, a customer and what they're expecting. And it, it sort of, it, a, it provided a lot of motivation, but B, it gave us a lot of the context around this market that, you know, we're coming into new. So, and I don't know if you're privy to this information and, and being that it was so far back, because I know it takes a number of years to put something like this together, but back at the start, was it looking to the customer to see what bike they wanted? Was it, was it thinking, was it a consideration of Harley-Davidson to enter the adventure motorcycle uh, market in particular, and then to see how the customers reflect on it? Or was this sort of a blindside where you go and do your survey and you talk with customers and they come out and, you, and somebody comes back and says, they want an adventure bike? I think I would say it, it was it was broad. I mean, there was a certain element of, of broadness to the questioning, but we did focus in on adventure touring very quickly, uh, and and for a lot of reasons, and chief among them being that it's it's a growing segment and it's a dynamic segment, and it's it's a place that that we didn't play in and we really wanted to understand. So we certainly you know you know drilled deep into it. Well, as far as design goes, you, you guys have a whole bunch of things on this new bike, the uh, the Pan America. It's uh, it's highly complicated as because every motorcycle is. And when you when I start to look at the photos and stuff, especially the the cutaways of the engine and things like that, I, I can't help but sort of marvel at the the engineering behind something like this and think, how much time does it take? for you guys to come up with a concept of, okay, we're going to enter the adventure motorcycle industry. And the reason I'm asking this is because a lot of times I think people look at, uh, at companies and say, oh, I see what they've done. They, they took that engine and they put it in that, and they came up with a new a bike, basically, a new suspension, new frame or something like that. But it seems like everything here is brand new. I mean, we're not looking at the normal Harley-Davidson engine in this, the 90-degree V-twin. Nothing seems familiar. 45 degree V-twin, but uh, let me just jump in, Michael, and then I'll have you jump in. Yeah, there is nothing on this motorcycle that uh, existed in the, in the lineup before. And that is a, a bit of a misnomer that, that some people believed that uh, the powertrain was a derivation of V-Rod or of the street, you know, Revolution X powertrain. This is an entirely new ground up design in every way. And, and Michael, can you speak more about that? Yeah, we, um, you know, when we talk about how long it takes, it's always a tough question to answer, but because what, how it really works with an engineering is we are constantly working on um, innovation and we're constantly um, looking at opportunities to, uh, at new things. And so we have a lot of like development motors or development suspension systems or lighting systems. And, um, and sometimes they're, they're systems, you know, that are in need of a product. And in, and in much cases, um, a lot of what you're seeing on Pan Am is, you know, prior innovation work, um, you know, true R&D work that's made its way into a product. And, um, and to Paul's point, you know, this is, uh, you know, 100%, you know, HD designed and, you know, manufactured. The engine itself, sorry, I, I said 90, it's 45. The engine, the, the 1250, can you just describe that and, and talk about what that is? Now, I, I guess maybe, Mike, that's that's up to you, being the group chief engineer. So are you asking to get into the into the motor a little bit? Well, is that yeah, what you're and just, just sort of overall description of, of what it is. Well, if, you know, you start, when you start talking about, let's start with the bike, 
And the reason why I want to start with the bike is because one of the key aspects of a Harley is that the, the engine is the crown jewel of the motorcycle. And so when you see a Harley, the thing you expect to see is you expect to see a, you know, the aesthetic of this V twin. And so that's one, you know, the first thing you'll see when you see this bike and compared to maybe some of the competition is a highly exposed motor. That's also cosmetic, you know, cosmetically refined. And in this case, also the motor is a structural member of the frame. So I think you'd start there is that, you know, and the reason we did that was really all around lightweight, you know, making sure that, you know, this motorcycle is coming to these customers um, in in a competitive, incredible way. So like, you know, just to put it in perspective, you know, um, you know, this Pan America motorcycles coming in around like 530, 540 pounds, you know, like our road Kings, which are grand American touring, keep that in mind, you know, they're, they're up in the mid eight hundreds. Right. So we're talking about a 300 pound difference between, you know, what, what, you know, engineers like myself are used to working on. And in order to enable that, you know, it was kind of, um, you know, a, a, a no brainer that we needed to make this frame a structural member of the bike. And then the, you know, then you get into aspects of, you know, performance. And again, when we developed this, you know, this product, we had table stakes and table stakes were things like, if we're going to enter this market for these customers, this is what they expect. And in many ways, the, 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 the competition has really set the requirements, right? I mean, there's good products out there. And so when we talk about, you know, 150 horsepower and 94 foot pounds of torque, you know, that was um, driving, you know, this motor to be what it is. Um, now, the, the, you know, when we came, we said, okay, specs are important, but we have to say, what are we bringing as Harley Davidson? And so then we talk about things like, you know, in our requirements verbiage, we'll say, how we win, you know, okay, specs are a table space that these customers expect. What are we going to bring, you know, as Harley Davidson to this segment? And we really focused on characterful power. So when we talk about characterful power, we talk about a lot of things. We talk, might talk about just the feel of the bike. So maybe vibration. Okay. So we want an alive, intuitive, responsive feel on this bike that people, you know, relate to Harley. And so that drives architecture. It might drive, you know, at that 30% or 30 degree offset of our crank pins to get our 90 degree firing order to provide this balanced vibration, but it still feels alive when you're on it. And there's things like, um, you know, we expect to have a very flat torque curve, right? We want a wide torque band on a Harley. Okay, so that drove, well, how do we do that? On, a, on this high-performance engine, that's why we implemented this, um, you know, VVT system, right? So we have highly high control for low-end torque as well as high-end horsepower. And, um, and then finally, it gives us better fuel economy. We can control, you know, the, the motor for fuel economy. So 
the the motor is um you know it is the crown jewel of of the um of the motorcycle uh highly um you know um stylized as well as lightweight and it was it was super important to make this a credible bike why not just use a your old heart old harley engine but your your standard harley engine yeah i think you get back to you know what the customer expects in this segment you know and, and you know there are customers that expect this, you know, high performance, 150 horsepower motor, and they expect lightweight, right? And I just, you know, gave you an example of what, you know, we're talking hundreds of pounds lighter and uh, the, the, the uh, air-cooled um, the bike that I have, right, on my touring bike, super great motor. That Milwaukee 8 is a great motor, but just not right for this customer. There's a couple of things you mentioned in there about the engine that, that I was interested in. And the, you said VVT, variable um, valve timing. How does that work? Yeah, so there's a, um, you know, this is a double overhead cam, you know, um, motor. And so you've got intake and exhaust cams on both cylinders. And um, what the variable valve timing is a hydraulic actuated system what it allows you is to change timing on your cam in order to optimize for, um, you know, torque performance, fuel economy. Um, and so, um, that, that kind of customization that we can apply to our engine, um, makes this motor work in all conditions. And it's, you know, it's fully, um, you know, I think it's like a 40 degree, um, control, through the firing order that we can, you know, control both intake and exhaust cam. So it's not just a, um, like a shift cam, which has like a, it's more binary. This is fully, you know, it's across the, um, you know, the, the, uh, firing order of the, of the cams. So it's changing it all the time while you ride. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's it has that constant variable, I guess, is the word that you'd use. And I notice also that it's got hydraulic lifters. And I think, how cool is that? Because that totally eliminates the hassle that everyone has of having to adjust their valves. Not to mention the expense, because it can be quite expensive if, if you're not doing it yourself. Yeah, you got it. There's there's a lot into this. We, we look at the you know, cost of ownership as well when we, when we design these things. And those are decisions that we make that uh, we hope the customers appreciate. Well, the hydraulic lifters, I, I got very excited when I saw that. I, I think that's just a great thing. And I'm thinking if, you, if you're doing hydraulic lifters, what, what is it about your design with this engine that you can do hydraulic lifters and other companies can't or won't? Oh, boy, I think you just went beyond my um, knowledge uh, in the motor, wh why we chose this versus others. I, I do know we, we do maintain very tight specifications in our um, machining at our uh, powertrain operations in um, up here in uh, Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And so we do have some um, competitive advantages in regards to some of our machining capabilities. And that might be one thing, but there may be other things as well. Yeah, I was gonna say for certain, we have a lot of experience in the space. Anyway, I can't speak to why our competitors don't choose to do it, but- You're possible. talking about, like in the concern. space of hydraulic lifters, Paul. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Our, so our Sportster powertrains, our big twin powertrains, they're all, you know, hydraulically actuated lifters and, and don't require valve adjustments. So it was something 
as we thought about, you know, what what are the competitive advantages we can bring to this this segment? This was something that we had experience in. Well, there was also the mention about the the thirty degree offset pin, I believe it was, and the the way that the engine fires. Now, the thing is, everybody who knows Harley Davidson, I think everybody does knows that signature sound that Harley has. It's got a beautiful tone to the engine. It's undeniably just beautiful. What does this engine sound like? And and does it represent Harley the same way? Well, I think that was part of what, you know, Mike talked about characterful power delivery. We're obviously very well in tune with what our, our motors sound like, and, and we paid very close attention to the competition in this space. Of course, it doesn't sound like a 45 you know, degree air-cooled V-twin, like the traditional Harley-Davidson motor, but it has its own sound and it's aggressive and, and it's, it's uh, pleasing. And it was something that we focused on greatly. Yeah. I, I would assume you would, because it, it is so iconic for Harley-Davidson, that sound. So you're saying this, this doesn't sound the same. It's, it's, it, but it, that, that 30 degree offset pin that I was just talking about, isn't that an attempt to make this thing uh, fire similar to the original or, or to the standard Harley engine? Yeah, that, that 30 degree offset was put in for both sound and feel. And so we also wanted to have, you know, we've got um, two balancers in this motor and these things are tuned. So everything about this motor gets tuned for both sound, vibration. So that's the feel you feel. Um, you know, in your hands or, you know, on your body and then also, um, you know, the, the torque. So, um, it's, you know, I've heard it referred to as our secret sauce (laughs) that we employ in regards to our engine development, because, um, we don't, again, just look at specs, you know, those are one thing, but we look at what, what the characterful performance of this motor is and, you know, whether it's this offset or whether it's balancers, or whether it's our VVT, everything is tuned to um, to achieve this, um, you know, alive, intuitive, um, responsive, um, you know, look, sound, and feel of the motorcycle. So you actually want a certain amount of vibration felt. Yeah, you got it. Um, yeah, we um, we absolutely want the motorcycle to feel alive, even at idle. So we want that alive feeling. And then we, and conversely, we want it to be responsive. And um, so that when you get on it, you feel, okay, um, uh, the, the, the motor is reacting, you know, um, to what my inputs are. And, and, you know, finally, you want it to be intuitive. And um, so that's, that's very tough because you want a, as you, as you progress through an RPM band, you want to make sure there's no dead spots in sound or dead spots in vibration that can happen through like damping uh, within the system. And so we you want it to be intuitive that what the what you're feeling and hearing is what's happening. So this is all a- part of that characterful power delivery, right? It's the it's the feel, it's the sound, it's what it, it how it interacts with the rider. And when we benchmarked the space, we could see some some motorcycles in the space do it very well and others not so well. And we wanted to, to bring our expertise in this area um, to life in, in Pan America. So if you hear a, a Pan America running, do you automatically associate it with, I mean, do you think, do you think that the person will automatically associate it with Harley Davidson? 
Once they write it, they will. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's not going to be the type of sound though. Like, are you, uh, I'm asking, is it going to be the type of sound that when you listen, you go, wow, that, that sounds like a Harley. I, I think I, I'd answer the same way as, as Paul is. It doesn't sound like our big twin. So yeah. maybe that's, that's, and, and we didn't want it to sound like that. And I don't right. think the customers want it to sound like that. Um, so it, it is a, it is new, unique, but um, we took, you know, aspects of our heritage into, again, this characterful power, and we put it into this, you know, high-performance adventure touring engine. You've got um, you've got 19-inch uh, front wheel on it, uh, 17 in the rear, I believe. I think the, the base model comes with cast wheels, and the special model comes with spoked wheels, which are tubeless. It seems like you've got a lot of uh, technology on it. But, um, Paul, can you just walk through w- what this frame is made up like? What you mean, are you talking oh, sorry, about the whole bike? The whole bike? Yeah. Well, yeah. We, and you mentioned we do have the special is optional. You can have it with cast or the optional cast lace wheels. But we in, intentionally created two motorcycles um, to meet the needs of various riders. And, and that was the you – know, when we looked at space, we saw the opportunity. And so, you know, the 1250, Pan America 1250 is priced, you know, you know, less because it has less content. And in some cases, um, you know, some of those riders won't necessarily be looking for off-road prowess like you would be on, on the special, which you can, you can order with things like cast lace wheels. And, you know, you, you know it, it's, it's a view of the segment and in order for us to really kind of capture the needs and wants of, of a variety of customers. That's, that's why we, we developed the two different models and have them marketed side by side. The overall dimensions are, are sort of, I guess, within the adventure motorcycling segment. Is, are there anything about the ergonomics or, or is the, the frame design that really stands apart from everything else that's on the market? You're talking specifically about the frame. I think Michael touched on the fact that the that the motor is a stressed acts as a stressed part of the frame. But if you're if you're speaking about the dimensions of the motorcycle, you'll find there's some similarities with what's out there. But one of the things that we really focused on was the ability to have um, it fit more people. So the seat has two positions that it can be in a higher and a lower position. And then we offer you know, what really is an industry first and revolutionary you know, um, technology, this, this ARH, um, that's, that's adaptable ride height, which, again, lowers the motorcycle um, so that more people can experience adventure touring than really have ever before due to their inseam. So that system, what it does is it, it, it lifts your bike up as you're riding. And when you come to a stop, it lowers your bike down so it's easier to touch the ground. Exactly. And, the, and and you can customize it as the ride. You can customize that experience. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, you also have um, uh, computerized uh, um, uh, settings for, for different ride modes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Michael, do you want to talk about that as well as how it, how it uh, works in concert with things like adaptive ride height? And Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, pretty standard is to add, you know, ride modes into this segment. Um you know, we have, uh, you know, the sport mode, road mode, off-road, rain. And then we've got some variants within each of those modes, like an off-road um, plus. And then we furthermore have, um, depending on which model you're talking about, um, you know, one to three customized modes. And, um, you know, what that means is, is that based on the type of riding you're doing, 
um, in the computer control world, we're looking at things like engine braking control, throttle response, or sometimes people talk about throttle progressivity, you know, traction control and ABS, including both cornering and straight line control over those. And then if you're into the specials, it includes, um, because the specials include semi-active suspension, then you also get uh, further control on damping, you know, of your of, of forks and rear shocks. Um, the adaptive ride height, or we call ARH, um, that also has some control where you can control, A, you can turn it off. So there might be customers who don't want it to drop you know, maybe in an off-road riding uh, condition where you don't want the bike to drop when you're off-road, um, as well as how it drops, you know, a slow drop or a, or a fast drop, you know. Um, I've, you know, I've ridden the ARH a number of times and um, and um, it is super seamless, meaning you, you barely know it's there, but when you put your feet down, um, you know, I'm actually a bit of a taller rider. You, um, I'm like really flat footed on this bike with the ARH system. So it's, it really breeds confidence. You know, probably the thing I would speak to again about these ride modes is we give a, um, uh, a high amount of customization to this rider, um, and how they want to do that with these customizable modes. And, um, that's part of our, you know, our strategy is, you know, making these bike customizable as much as possible. And um, we really did that on the, on the ride modes. I, I want to emphasize that just for a moment, because I agree, it, it's something that's a big differentiator. We, we allow a significant um, departure in the modes and the feel that you'll get from the motorcycle. And, and it's not only intuitive for the, you know, if you want to be in sport mode versus off-road or, or rain, there's also, as Michael noted, customizable modes where we allow customers to go in there and set within you know parameters, um, and it really does allow a, a high level of custom customization for the, the rider, depending on what they want their bike to feel like in a given situation. How does that work off road? So you know, off road, you've got multiple. Um, you know, variants of, of uh, ride modes. Um, as an example, an off-road plus, a lot of people would like to turn ABS off, right? And so you can turn ABS off in that mode. On the rear rear tire only. Rear tire, yeah, sorry. Um, and so, um, but, you know, off-road even has a soft and a firm um, suspension damping on, um, on the semi-actives. So if, if you want to tune that suspension based on what kind of road you're on, you can even go, you know, soft and firm on damping. And, um, and so I think the, the, the key, the, the key point is that all of these things, you know, as the rider progresses, they can, you know, select. Now we do have some standard modes for those who just want that too. Right. Uh, based on, you know, what we expect a, um, off-road base and then off-road plus to be. The ride height, how does the ride height work though off-road? So if you've got a set, so it's going to lower down when you come to a stop, does that stay working like that as you, as you're off-road going at slower paces? So yeah. the, Oh, I, I, I see what you're saying. You can, you, I, I mentioned you can turn 
the ARH off if you want. But if you are off-road and you still want the ARH, it will still function uh, fine. Yeah. And I would, I would add it, it doesn't come into play until you're, you're going at less than, than say five miles an hour. You're, you're essentially coming to a stop and it's, it's decreasing the ride height progressively as you come to a stop. It's, it's working in a way that's almost seamless and almost imperceptible to the rider until you come to a stop and your foot reaches out and you're on the ground. Yeah, that's that, what I, I was thinking about that because I'm thinking that as you're off road, you're you're going slower and faster. You know, and and many times with an adventure right. bike, you're going very very slow. So I can imagine that you know it might be a little confusing, but they're going up and down the entire time. I imagine that the thing to do is disable it for that that style of riding. Yeah, I I did some of that riding off road recently, and um, it you don't really notice it coming into play um, until you, until you come to a stop. But yeah. you, you can, as Michael noted, you can you can you can put it into a locked mode where the adaptive ride height system maintains the normal ride height and does not lower it a stop. When I was looking at the specs for this, and I came across a little asterisk on one of them when it had to do with the the laden seat height, it had it had laden seat height. And I think it was maybe it's thirty two inches, something like that, thirty one inches, something like that. But the little asterisk said that this has been used determined. Uh, this has been determined rather using a one hundred and eighty pound rider. Is that what the Pan American has been designed for? Is a 180 pound rider? And the reason I ask this is because this is a question that is always out there. Everybody always accuses the Japanese manufacturers of, of making it, you know, for the, for very light people. And I'm just sort of curious, is that the profile? Is that the rider profile? No, that's just a, um, we got to, if you're doing laden seat heights, you need a, a, a you got to say what the rider is. It's not what the design of the motorcycle was made for, but it's just a way to put it in context with a 180 pound rider. Mm. Um, right. The, the suspension, you can adapt your preloads based on, you know, a variety of, of, of rider weights. Like Michael said, that's just the standard for determining what does laden mean? What, how much weight are you making it laden? That's a pretty normal standard for that we've used anyway. Because, you know, one thing that, that I'm curious about with this is is that Harley-Davidson has always had a certain image, or at least it has for many, many years. I, I know it originally started out with doing dirt stuff, but it, it has a it has a street image. It's got an image of the sound that we talked about, that that iconic Harley-Davidson sound. And even the riders, there, there's a certain rider profile. And many times I've heard it said, you know, with Harley-Davidson riders that, hey, if you're not riding a Harley-Davidson, it's not a motorcycle that you're riding. How do you think this fits into the adventure motorcycle scene where I think it's more of um, a mix uh, of, um, of different brands and different bikes that people are riding because it, it's more about the activity than it is about the actual brand? Sure. I mean, if you think about it, that's, that's a big part of the reason why we, we announced so early that we were entering this space. It was for a number of reasons. One was to, you know, start to convince um, the marketplace and the people who are in this segment that we can build a credible adventure touring bike and that we understand them as customers and what they want and how they want to be treated. Who was to also train our dealers to, to essentially, you know, have them learn and understand about the adventure touring market, about these customers, their needs, and uh, about our motorcycle and the, and the competitors in the space. So we've used this time um, to do those things. And to really, you know, make sure that that uh, our dealerships are welcoming and, and and open to a different kind of customer. 
Because it is a totally different kind of customers, different kind of scene. And, and I can imagine that um, that they're going to be looking for different things when they get to the dealership. What's changed at the dealership then? So if you go to, to a Harley dealer, does it look different now with the with the unveiling of the Pan America? Or is it, does it look the same and just sort of have a Pan America in there? Well, I think that it will look a little bit different. And we certainly have already started that, uh, you know, with other products that don't fit the normal, call it Harley-Davidson genre. And, and you think about Livewire. And the type of customer that's coming in to buy an electric motorcycle is not necessarily, you know, the, uh, you know, the stereotypical type of a Harley Davidson customer. So, you know, it starts with, frankly, the people. It starts with the sales staff and the uh, the people in the service staff and those that um, that the customer will interact with, and getting them to understand um, the products, not only our products but also the competitors in the space, and then to think about how these customers are different from the customers we use currently. So how and and when do you know that this is is a success in in this segment of the market? Obviously, it's going to be sales driven. But I mean, what's there, is there a timeline for this that you're sort of giving it to say, okay, well, if it if it doesn't take off by this time, it's going to be pulled. Maybe maybe I'm asking for too much inside information here. <laughs> We're committed to the space, but yeah. we've already started to see signs of success. Right, we we sold out of the 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 very first uh, pre order motorcycles in the U.S. and there's been a ton of excitement, not just here, but also around the world. So, you know, we know we've, we, we we're hitting the ground with a product that is in some cases, some people are not expecting us to be able to do the, the specifications and the, and the pricing. I think we, we um, surprise some people, let's say it. And so we're super excited about entering the stage of uh, having motorcycles, production motorcycles roll down the, the assembly line and then shipping to dealers in the U.S. We expect you know, bikes to be in dealerships in May and then having customers come and, and uh, experience these bikes. Also around that same time, we'll be doing consumer demos. And um, you know, once they get out in the real world, that momentum, I think, will be will be big. I'd, I'd, um, I, I, I kind of feel like for me, it was last fall when I had the um, you know, a long breath of, Hey, we got a winner here. And, and, and where that comes from is we have a lot of ADV riders who work at Harley, um, both at our proving grounds in Arizona, a fair amount of them ride, you know, competitive adventure touring product. There are test riders out there and, you know, the feedback from them after all of the durability testing and performance testing, you know, they're ready to buy one. And, um, and then the second thing is uh, we ran a, um, we called it a butts on bike activity um, in the fall where we had, I had 47 adventure touring riders, all Harley employees um, and um, come in and spend a day or two at four bikes ready for them and, and just, you know, almost a hundred percent positive excitement. And, um, and so based on our, you know, our proving ground riders, you know, the people, you know, in the Harley family who like this space, um, just super, super good, um, feedback. Well, I'm very excited about um, Harley-Davidson being in this segment because I think uh, Harley brings a, a lot of muscle to the industry and to the market. So I, I think there's only great things can come from this, this new offering. 
but I think I'd be remiss if I don't sort of ask you guys about the looks of this bike because it's certainly drawn some some attention and certainly has drawn some ridicule. Some people have looked at this. I've seen I've seen many posts and many people have said to me that it's it's an ugly motorcycle. And I hate to be so blunt with you, um, but that, that that's what they've said. Can you talk about the design? Yeah, I mean, we wanted it to look different than everything else is out there. And I guess I'll also challenge the assertion that there is any beautiful adventure touring motorcycles out there. They all have a kind of a unique look in space. I'll also say that people need to see it in person. Um, I think it, it looks smaller and more aggressive in person than it does in photos. And I've heard that from people who came to see it at uh, Daytona Bike Week a year ago, as well as at the IMS shows. But uh, yeah, we definitely wanted it to look different. We drew on some of our own heritage as well as what we felt was, uh, you know, the more American off-road spirit, if you will. If you look at American off-road vehicles, and we didn't want it to look like everything else out there. So I would, I would, uh, I would say yes, that was very intentional to make it look like what it looks like, and that uh, people should maybe uh, take a look at it in person when they get a chance and uh, see if their opinion doesn't change. Are there any practical reasons that it has even the headlight set up the way it is? You know, it's one of the things about the headlight that uh, hasn't drawn a lot of attention yet, but it's a really bright headlight. And it also comes with an adaptive uh, headlight that that is cornering enhanced. So when you're in the corners, that upper light is actually lighting um, the turn as you're going through it. And it's something that probably people won't really understand until they ride one at night. But uh, it's 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 super bright, and we know a, a lot of adventure tours are on the road long hours, and and will appreciate the uh, the ability to see through the corners. Yeah, this is using sensors. I think it's from your ABS, isn't it? The, is it the ABS sensors it uses to to change the lighting? Yeah, that's right. It's the uh, IMU unit for the cornering ABS that uh, provides the sensor for the adaptive headlight. Right. That's pretty sweet. You, you make a corner and you get some illumination into the corner in, in the direction you're turning in automatically yeah. and, and progressively. Yeah. And I'll echo what Paul said on this, these lights. Um, they are, I think best in class lighting um, as well as we've got a, a PNA offering for some um, auxiliary lamps that just light up the world. So um, lighting is super good on this bike. Anything else you guys would like to throw in here before we finish up? Uh, just just really appreciative of, of you having us on here and of people being interested in the motorcycle. We're very excited on um, the press launch for this motorcycle will be uh, in April. And, and as I mentioned, customers will start to be able to have uh, demo opportunity late April and into May. And we can't wait for people to throw a leg over Pan America 1250 and 1250 special and, and, and get that experience because um as much as people were kind of blown away by the specifications i think riding experience is, is even going to be more so yeah i'll, I'll uh, echo that and thank you um you know when i started on this project you know you know we we um we knew we were coming into a very competitive segment and uh you know we're very proud at harley but we, we come into this segment you know with some humility understanding that there's some good competition out there and, um, and we worked really hard on this, uh, working on a ground up vehicle is a, you know, once in a lifetime experience for an engineer. And, and I sure hope, um, you know, the adventure touring writers out there appreciate the, uh, you know, the hard work effort that went into this. And, um, we're very proud of this motorcycle. 
Well, as I said, I'm, I'm very excited about Harley being in it. I, I think what not only what Harley can do in the market, but for the market, just by being there and, and being a part of it. So I'm, I'm stoked and we'll see where it goes. Michael, thank you very much. Paul, thank you very much. It was great to have you both on and I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to have a chat. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so yep. much. Thank you, Jim. That was Mike Case and Paul James. Mike Case is the chief engineer for the Pan America Project. And Paul James is the senior manager of public relations for Harley Davidson. Hey, if you end up going out and buying a Pan America, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know about that. Anyway, in the show notes for this episode, we've got a bunch of photos of the Pan America and other things in there. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and look at the show notes. Now, we're going to take just a short break while I tell you about a couple things. When we come back, Motorcycle Industry Council board member Tim Calhoun. Stay with us. We've got more coming up. Most riders that have some miles under their belt immediately understand the advantages of having a throttle lock. What is a throttle lock? Well, basically, it's a friction device mounted near or on your throttle tube that holds your throttle to a set position. So when you're riding down a long stretch of road, you can just set the lock and then release the tension tension that builds up in your wrist. Now, this can be key because it's small tensions like that that I think uh, at least contribute to fatigue. Uh, In itself, holding the throttle is really no big deal. But holding onto the same position for a while, combined with maybe the wind buffeting your helmet, the noise in your ears, and maybe some vibration, well, it all sort of gets to you. And that's what the fatigue that I'm talking about, the rider fatigue. And with the throttle, obviously you have to keep your your throttle steady, which means holding your hand at that exact same position. um, So you're not going up and down in speed and, and driving everyone else on the road nuts. Now I've used throttle locks for years. And I guess I sort of fell into putting up with something that doesn't quite do the job. You know, often they would just continually slip off over a period of time. Frustrating to use. There was many problems depending on which one you're talking about. I've tried a bunch of different models and and all sort of the same, you know, maybe, maybe some different problems with them, but I, I never really found anything that, that really impressed me. I just sort of put up with it. That was until I bumped into Heidi and David Winters at the Vancouver Motorcycle Show. They had a booth there for Atlas, their Atlas throttle lock. And I was quite taken immediately by the, by the design of this thing. It's, it's really well designed when you pick it up. You can see that this thing's been very well thought out and it's all metal construction. It fits on almost any bike. And more importantly, after trying it, it works like a dream. And I mean like a dream. There's two buttons on this thing, one for engage, one for disengage. They are smooth and positive when you press them and it works perfectly just like it should. You can increase or reduce the throttle while you have it engaged without disengaging it. He just, once you have the, the engage button on, if you come to a hill, you need a little more throttle, you just give it a little more throttle. And then when you want to take it off, you just take a little bit of throttle off. I like to say it works kind of like OEM. In other words, it's something that, it, that works so well, you'd swear it was built from the factory on a high-end bike. It is a beautiful piece of equipment. Do yourself a favor. Grab one for yourself. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. And be sure to throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, AtlasThrottleLock.com. And by the way, David and Heidi, the owners of Atlas, they're also motorcycle travelers. As a matter of fact, that's how they got into making the Atlas Throttle Lock. AtlasThrottleLock.com. We've talked many times of the importance of your feet 
and how to use them to control your bike, and in particular in our rider skills segments that we do here on Adventure Rider Radio, especially when you're standing. But even if you're riding down the road, your feet need to be comfortable and connected for proper control. Your foot pegs are one of the most important connections between you and your motorcycle. And I'm sure if you think it through, I mean, it's very obvious. It's one of those areas that no matter what bike you ride, you'll have a better ride with a quality set of foot pegs. What does quality mean? Well, first, they need to be designed in a way that they add leverage and connection without changing the ergonomics or leverage to your brake and your shift levers. That's really important and, and an oversight, I think, in, in a lot of them. There's also the need to keep your feet in position, in the balance position on the frame. That, again, is the placement and the angle of the foot peg. And then they may need to be made of some super tough material to withstand the abuse they get. I mean, you think about it when you drop your bike, it's the peg that ends up getting rammed up, caught on rocks, etc. IMS has been making parts for motorcyclists and racers since 1976. And over that time... 45, 45 years, I think it's, yeah, it's 45 years. They have learned plenty and they apply it to all their products they make. You can tell by the fact that almost every winning off-road race team has some IMS products on their bike. And in that arena, the racing arena, you got to have top quality, super tough products. There's just no doubt about it. And that's just what they've done for us at Adventure Motorcyclists as well. IMS products has a full line of motorcycle foot pegs designed to give you the added leverage you need to control your heavy adventure bike to keep your feet planted and connected, to shed mud and crap from the pegs so that your feet do stay connected and they're not bogged up with mud. I find with my IMS foot pegs that I, I actually forget they're there. And to me, that's what a great product is, is something that does its job so well, you don't have to think about it because it's, it's doing everything it's supposed to do. You don't need to fiddle or reposition or, or try and do something to work around the downfalls of it. And IMS foot pegs, I think uh, you're going to find the same thing if you get them for yourself. The website is imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, even if you're just inquiring, asking them about something, imsproducts.com. And now for an outside uh, sort of opinion conversation on the Harley Davidson Pan America, we've got Tim Calhoun. Tim uh, is a recognized leader in the power sports industry, working in a number of capacities over the years, including CEO and national manager, brand manager, and many more. He's now the VP of sales at Quinn Design. He's also a board member on the Motorcycle Industry Council, and he's the chairman of the aftermarket committee at the MIC as well. My name's Tim Calhoun. I'm the Vice President of Sales with Quinn Design Helmets here in Dallas, Texas. Tim, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Good to be here, Jim. Today's a special day for you. Can I say that? You can say that. And what is it? Uh... It's my Heinz birthday. I am 57 today. 57. You know, I have to admit, I've never heard of it called a Heinz birthday, and I'm not looking forward to it either. <laughs> <laughs> I had to come up with something to say 57. It wasn't so painful. <laughs> so, Tim, at 57, and I love this question, what do you know now that you didn't know when you were 47? Um, 
to close my mouth more probably. Wow. That is, that is a really common theme for us as we get older. We do learn to shut up more. That, that's, I, yes. I mean, the whole thing is upside down, isn't it? I mean, we learn everything to die. <laughs> we should have had it at the start. Yeah. It would have helped things out well, so much. Well, you know, at 30, you know everything. And at 57, you realize how stupid you really are. I know. <laughs> there, there's that joke I think about, uh, actually, it's not a joke. It might, it might be from someone famous. It might have been uh, um, from... Um, an author, but it was at, at 30, it was at 16 to 16. I was shocked at how little my father knew. And by the time yeah. I was 20, I was amazed at what he'd learned. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a good old age. Well, happy birthday, Tim. And, and I'm really, well, thank you. I'm honored to have you on in your birthday. Well, thank you. No, I, I, I love listening to your show. I love listening to your guests and I, I love being part of what you're doing. Oh, I, I really appreciate that. Now, Harley-Davidson, Pan America, obviously you have not ridden this bike, but you've been in this industry for a long time. You've done a lot of different things. You, you are, are very well connected in this. And I'm, I'm sort of curious where you think that, um, where this is going, the, the Pan America. Um, I, I have thought a lot about it because it's been interesting watching this emerge. It's been interesting watching Harley uh, customers transition over the last, 10 years or so, their drive towards a younger audience. Um, it's, it, this is such a, I won't say far-fetched thing for them to do, but it, it is a reach for Harley and it's a very brave one. And I think it's a smart one. Um, there are concerns though. They have failed certain things in the past. Um, you know, Buell was not necessarily a very good fit, unfortunately, because it was a fun bike to ride. But I think they were always so focused on the Harley culture and the Harley crowd and the Harley whatever. Buell was just an oddball. It was like the weird cousin nobody wanted to talk to, right? Well, well that's probably an interesting little thing to analyze, talk about, because that is similar, isn't it, to the Pan America, the Buell. So if if they had that trouble back then with Buell, um, maybe, maybe what we should really start start off with is really talking about uh, the Harley-Davidson culture. I mean, the way sure. that I see Harley-Davidson, I think most people do, has to do with cruisers, you know, leather, tattoos. There's, there's a certain feel to Harley-Davidson. And, and of course, there's been that that saying that, you know, you hear Harley riders will, will sometimes say that, hey, if it's not a Harley, it's not a motorcycle. So there's a certain exclusivity to Harley Davidson. And is that where the problem was with Buell? I, I think to some degree, for sure. I think the Buell was relatively well accepted and well respected from the the metric community. I mean, Eric Buell is definitely an eccentric gentleman, but but I think he's earned his place. And, and if you rode the bike, especially early Buells, they were a blast with all that torque, which you didn't typically find from a from a japanese metric right and um the, the geometry was amazing on that bike and there's a lot of great things but it just didn't speak to i think most people walking into that harley showroom it was just kind of a, a weird duck right and i don't know that harley ever really gave it that much of a chance as well quite frankly they didn't try to build a culture around it or embrace the culture that we're buying it i mean you'd have a guy like me go in and buy a buell and leave and never go back to that harley shop because it wasn't my culture, right? So they didn't build that culture they're known for. The thing I think that's really different right now, maybe, and this is more from what I'm seeing out there because I've been doing a lot of business in Harley shops, is I'm starting to see a lot of guys like me that grew up maybe in a sport bike world or dirt biking or metric world. As we're getting into our 50s and 60s, the last of the boomers and stuff like that. Um, we're going more towards cruisers or overlanding or adventure riding. 
uh, more of an upright position, something that's comfortable to ride all day in. And I think Harley is more appealing on that front because of that. And I'm seeing people ride Harleys now I thought would never ride a Harley, but the days of wanting to go do a track day or whatever, you know, a high-speed run on the highway, maybe are behind this. And really just they're out there for the pure joy of riding now as much as anything. And and as big as ADV is getting, I think it's a, it's probably a good stab for Harley to take um, building a bike to that. But there's there's a lot of places that can fall down if they don't do certain things, in my opinion. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely a market for them to get into because it is the growing market. The adventure motorcycle market is really the market that's growing for motorcycling. But having having said that, just because it's a market and just because you can build motorcycles doesn't necessarily mean that you can build a motorcycle that's going to take off like wildfire or even be successful in that market. And, and that's that's the thing that I that I think I have trouble getting my head around. I'm very excited about Harley Davidson being a part of this, and and I really do hope it works because I think that you know just because of who Harley is and how big Harley is and and, and they're such a big part of the industry, I think it is great for the industry if it works. But I have trouble seeing how it's going to because I see that Harley customer or that Harley image as one thing. And I see adventure motorcycling as something else. Am I out to lunch with that? Um, not completely, but I think there was a time not that long ago. Um, it's kind of the height of Harley Davidson where you could barely get a Harley guy to wave at you when you went by him on the road, right? You oh, no Harley doubt. or nothing else. And I think as the market crashed in 08 and over the last decade or so where it's been slowly rebuilding and riders have changed i see you know you go to sturgis you see a lot of metric bikes you see a lot of adventure bikes as well as harleys right Uh, the same is true you go to the wing ding and you probably see more harleys than you do gold wings now right so there's definitely i think a bigger mix of kind of getting back to how it was when i first started as a teenager where if you just ride, that's all that matters, right? Just just be a rider. And it almost doesn't, you know, while you while a bike is an extension of yourself to some degree, I think it's not a, a uh, limitation to who you ride with as much as it was at one time. I mean, I have no problem riding with somebody on a Harley, and hopefully nobody on a Harley has a problem riding with me. We just want to ride. And I see more and more of that, in my opinion, than we've seen for quite a while, which is exciting. Um, but I think behind the Harley project, there may be some other things that are tucked in there where you look at things like, you know, the V-Rod coming out, good motor, good bike, but never caught because it just wasn't that V-twin somebody thump, you know, bike. Mm-hmm. And I think with the adventure bike, they have an opportunity to really stretch their engineering, to move into a different power plant, um, to create a different uh, engine configuration, bike configuration that could really go into a lot of arenas. I mean, it wouldn't be hard or that far fetched to see Harley building a monster type motorcycle down the road with this type of engine and setup, right? Um, it opens up to where they can be the American motorcycle for everybody, not just for somebody getting on a cruiser and going down the highway. And it's on one hand, it's a bold move, but I think it's a smart move if they're going to expand what their audience is and expand what they are as a company beyond this traditional v-twin heavyweight cruiser and so in my hope of popes i i do hope they find success with this brand but they also have to from a cultural standpoint change what they're doing in a big way or they are going to fail you can't be just you know we're only going to have harley stuff in this store or we're only going to be inclusive to our harley crowd i mean you know, talking to some friends, we were talking about something like a BMW MOA rally is very inclusive, but there's 
tons of adventure rallies where it doesn't matter what you're on, you just show up at. And how great would it be when Harley Davidson sponsors an American adventure rally where it doesn't matter what you show up on, but it, what a great way to showcase the Panamera to everybody on a BMW or a KTM or a Honda Africa Twin. If you just invite everybody and say, hey, riders, come be part of us and, and stop the, the pretense of it being HD themed thing, but know that they're putting it on and making it great for everybody. And, and they start driving the market as the American brand who really creates a revival of ridership and expands the market. And, you know, everything from a Harley Davidson branded Stasic little electric bike for kids and then having some smaller ADV or dirt bikes or having electric bikes coming into the market that are easy to ride because they don't have a clutch and a shifter, right? So there's a real opportunity here, I think, if they approach it correctly, but it has to be very inclusive, not exclusive as it has been in my personal opinion. But the, the thing that I see is that the market already exists, the, the adventure motorcycle market. It's been there. It's, it's, it's come to some level of maturity through all the other players that are in there already. I, I, d- I don't see it as Harley Davidson being able to come into the market and say, okay, now come and play in our field sort of thing. We're, we're now going to be, you know, the, the adventure motorcycle market because they're, they have, I mean, right now they have one bike and, and it's just coming out. I, I sort of see it the other way around. I, I see as that Harley's going to have to try and fit in in the market. And I guess I'm, I'm not, I'm sort of mixing my thoughts with, with company marketing, with people who ride as well, you know, and thinking, well, who's going to buy a Harley and why would they buy a Harley Pan America? There's all these other brands that have, that have uh, sort of earned their place, I guess, in the adventure motorcycle market. They've developed their bikes over these years of evolution that we've had in the adventure motorcycle industry. And along comes Pan America from a company that's really known for um, leather and street cruisers. Why Why will people buy a Pan America? Well, the only way I can maybe answer that is by just kind of giving you thoughts on how I looked at it. Um, as you know, I've had a certain affinity for perhaps a Honda Africa Twin for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when they announced it, I would never go towards a Harley Davidson. It's just, it's just not, it, it's not me, right? Um, I have no desire to be on a big Harley. I just, I just don't. Um, I'm probably go more towards, you know, the precision of a Japanese bike or the durability or all those things. But when they announced it for the first time in my life, honestly, I said, huh, maybe that's an option. And maybe that's a way I can just kind of enjoy Harley or be part of a Harley culture to some degree. Not that I'm dying to be, but it's something that I identify with that I want to be an adventure rider. And how cool is it to have an American adventure bike? And I think if you're an American, and I, I'm not by no means putting anybody down from anywhere else, but I think having an American brand that I can identify with, I've never really had that that much. And all of a sudden there's a bike there that I kind of go, huh, that's pretty cool. And so for me personally, it definitely is an option. And I think um, it's it's exciting to see maybe a little bit of a new direction from them. And um, yes, you're right. I mean, KTM and BMW and Honda and all these guys were in their stripes and adventure, and it's still their market. But it's kind of cool to see this iconic American brand go, huh, we'd like to play in there too. And for me, I'm willing to give them a shot and go, maybe it'd be fun to ride that thing too, and we'll see what happens, you know? When we talk about culture, you know, culture is made up by, by a lot of things. 
and when I think of the culture of Harley Davidson, for instance, I think of dealerships for starters, right? You've got the dealerships who represent the brand. They have a certain look and feel to them. And then the people who are, who are riding Harley Davidson's for the most part, uh, at least when they're riding their Harleys, they have a, a certain look or feel to them. It, how do you see that sort of melding to include all of a sudden now a dirty adventure bike? You know what I mean? Like even if you just look at the dealers. Well, you know, on the business side of this, there's some things that are definitely changed pretty dramatically for Harley dealers in the last year or two. Uh, one of them is that Harley, for the most part, as I understand it, is only doing one-year deals with dealers okay, on their contracts, which pretty much means Harley's going to be able to dictate whatever happens to that dealership much more than they have been able to in certain ways. And I think I got to think Harley's smart enough to understand they're going to have to build out a section of dealerships that is very adventure oriented. Uh, you look at something like the deal with Rever, Harley hasn't co-branded with a major brand since I don't know when, not for apparel. It's always been Harley apparel. Mm -hmm. So I think they're wise enough to recognize, let's take this brand that has great adventure gear and is a well-known international brand and let's co-brand and let's show that we can identify with that rider by having them design some cool stuff for us. It's Harley branded, but built by Rever. And I could see more things happening along those lines. I mean, your show famously always advertises IMS pegs. So, you know, maybe IMS starts building cool pegs for the Panamera, right? So there's little things like that, I think, that are going to come in. And I got to think Harley's going to be smart enough. They understand when you walk into a Harley dealership, what's the first thing you always see, Jim, when you walk in the store? Uh, cruisers. No, you see apparel, you see goodies, oh, you see, see toys, you see everything. You don't see bikes. So Harley, more than anybody, understands how to sell a lifestyle. So I got to think they're going to apply the same mentality to adventure that you walk in. You're going to see this cool looking adventure themed area that, you know, has cool adventure gear and, and, and crash bars and lights and you name it that, you know, fit into the adventure world. And it makes you feel very comfortable to walk into that. I, I you know, I got to give them credit for the fact that they understand their customer better than anybody. And I got to think they've done their homework on adventure riders and they're going to understand that customer very well as well. Well, in the interview I did with, with Mike Case and Paul James from Harley-Davidson, I mean, they, they were saying that they, they thoroughly understand their customers. As a matter of fact, that this thing st was stemmed from doing deep research into customers. And, and what they said was actually even going into customers' garages and, and looking at their bikes and talking to them about their riding. Do you see that in, in, in what you know of the market? Do you see that the, the Harley-Davidson riders out there are also adventure motorcyclists? Already. I think they're also I think they're also motorcyclists of various different bikes. So many, many years ago when there was a Gilroy Indian, I'd worked for him and we did a study then that found that the average Harley Davidson rider had one and a half motorcycles. Okay. So we knew there was something else in our garage. So we set our goal on being that other bike they had beyond a Harley was being an Indian. I think the same is true. There's plenty of Harley riders that have Ducatis, that have Suzuki's, that have dirt bikes, that have adventure bikes, etc. And they have one group of people they go on big cruises with and another group they may go adventure riding or sport bike riding or trail riding with. So I think they have done their research to understand that their, their riders typically have more than one bike. And their hope is instead of it being a KTM or a Ducati or a, a BMW, maybe it's a Harley Cruiser and a Harley Adventure bike. How many bikes do you think they're going to need to have? How many adventure motorcycles to really be part of the market? Will one do it? 
No, I, I think they're going to have to have, and, and I hope you don't take this as sexist, but more of a her bike or a smaller displacement or a younger rider bike in that adventure sector as well. I think they're going to have to sort out. I mean, it's, it's not that far-fetched to look at the 750 that's been to some degree fairly failed for Harley Davidson and look at that bike and go, man, it wouldn't be that hard to reconfigure that water-cooled bike into an adventure frame and offer a nice entry-level 750, 850 type adventure bike. And then you have your big boy, right? You mean with a normal Harley Davidson engine, like the thump thump engine? No, the the little 750 they had that they were building in India um, that just hasn't done very well. But isn't that a stroker, the same thing, uh, an over square engine, long stroke? Uh, to some degree, but again, it's not that hard to reconfigure something like that mm. into a smaller CC adventure bike. Um, I, and I believe, and I could be wrong, and you could have a million people write you and tell you how dumb I am, but I thought that 750 was a water-cooled bike, if I remember right. So, um, in any case, I, I think, you know, there's going to have, I think there's a need to have more of, of a basic level one. And then the, you know, the big bad bike, like everybody has, it's no different than KTM having an 890 or, a, you know, a GS 650 or all those things that are just kind of get you hooked. And then you want the, you want that big, beautiful thing as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I do see that happening. They've got um, loads of technology on this bike, all, all the latest things. And actually, some of it I, I find pretty impressive. Variable valve timing, most importantly, hydraulic valve lifters. Um, so you don't have to do any sort of valve adjustment. I think that's huge. And I, I was kind of wondering if, like, when you look at the list of tech, do you think that, that tech alone, specs alone, are enough to sort of sway people into buying a bike for adventure motorcycling? Um, I think it's going to be to some degree, like you and I discussed, there's always going to be first adopters. They're just super excited to get that bike, get it out there, put it through its paces. So, you know, there's a lot of ways this thing could fall down as well. I mean, if they didn't do the thorough testing and, you know, they have hydraulic lifter failures, the cam's too soft and, it, you know, the lobes start failing, whatever the case is, it's only going to take one or two or three bad things to, to really put a hiccup and their efforts to get this thing to go correctly, unfortunately, um, because so right. many other bikes are so well thought out. I mean, BMWs, you know, they're a beast. You can drive them a million miles and KTM's pretty much in the same boat now. And Honda is just Honda. It just runs forever. So on one hand, it is a very daring move on their part. So I got to think they understand how important it was to really vet all the, all the technology, all the mechanics of this bike properly. So they don't run into those. And even with all that testing and work, something's going to happen and how they handle that is going to be the most important thing they do um, to show they're capable of being in that sector and they're capable, you know, they've built a capable machine. And if they can do that, then I think they're going to win more people and there will be a second wave. If they don't do that, then it'll be a whole lot of first gen bikes sold. And then they're going to languish much like the Buell. If they don't do the culture, right, they don't do the mechanics, right. They don't address the issues. Right. But, Again, Harley's got a great marketing team. Harley's got a great engineering team. Um, Harley is really making strides towards where they're going to go. And quite frankly, with their new CEO, I truly believe this guy uh, is a writer. You know, when I see this guy, I do believe he he has a passion for writing. You see him in videos. You see him doing things. And, and I think, you know, being German, he probably is very well aware of what KTM brings to the market and what, you know, BMW brings to the market and understands what that benchmark is. So even from a leadership level, I believe you have somebody there that knows what they need to accomplish if this is really going to work and, 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 you know, 
be successful. To the point, what you were saying about, um, uh, you know, if they have any sort of problems, it's going to definitely affect their, how the bike does in the market and not just sales. Like we're not, we're just not talking about a model that's introduced here where, you know, some company who has a, uh, other bikes brings in a different size. And for some reason it doesn't really go in the market. This, this is their one and only. And the thing is with this bike is everything's brand new. I expected when they talked about the Harley adventure bike, I thought they were going to use this t- t- traditional Harley engine. This is a completely new engine. So everything's brand new. The potential for something to go wrong with this, I would think is huge. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, there's a lot of ways to fall down and, um, hopefully, you know, they've, they've done their work and they're prepared for that moment. And I, you know, it's Harley They're I'm quite sure they, they have their plans in place. And the good part is if this motor proves itself, think about the various platforms it opens itself up to. I mean, it's an amazing motor from a technological standpoint and, you know, it's not that far fetched. Like I said, to see them bringing out some type of monster, um, you know, unit like a monster uh, Ducati. It's not that hard to think about them bringing out some kind of standard non Harley standard, like a, like a scrambler. Right. So there's just, there's a lot of fun that could be had if this is successful and it could open up a whole new audience to being a Harley purchaser. I think if you come from the metric side where I've spent most of my career writing wise, you know, what you appreciate is the durability and the thoughtfulness and the design and the hard work that guys like Honda and other companies do in developing their product and making sure it's perfect before it ever gets to you. If they can do that part of it and build the confidence in that I can ride the bejesus out of a bike and put it away wet and know it's going to start up and run again the next day, then I'm in. Um, But my biggest fear is mechanically speaking, most of their mechanical aptitudes of their vehicles have been so outdated. It just doesn't have an interest for me, you know? And this sort of opens up a new door. Absolutely. I mean, when, when all the specs come out and people really understand how much work went in this, I think they'll be impressed. I think you sound like you're, you're kind of impressed from what you learned. I don't know what your interview, you know, what you had in your interview with them, but I'm really looking forward to hearing what they have to say. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and, and most of it was researching it really. And it is impressive. I mean, I think when you look at it, you can't help but be impressed with it technologically. It does look impressive on paper. Um, it's, it's odd because nobody's had a chance to ride it or anything else that they produced in this market. And that's what I'm thinking too, is I'm thinking that they're coming to this market now. And like I say, I, you know, I'm no expert, but I'm thinking the market is somewhat mature. Certainly at least, you know, we're from our contemporary point of view. Anyway, it's been around for a while and we're certainly developing for this market. It's, it's well-defined. They're entering it with one bike. And it, and it makes me think about, well, where are we going with this market? I mean, there is the big push for electric vehicles. We're, we're sort of on the cusp of some major changes with autonomous driving vehicles, which are already happening. And I don't know where the motorcycle is going to go as far as the motorcycle industry, but certainly to, in, to enter a market with the first um, offering in this market at this time, I'm wondering where it's, where the possibilities are here. They're also pushing heavily on the Livewire project, right? Because so they believe in electric vehicles. So do these things cross over, do you think, at one point? Um, some of the chassis could definitely cross over. I mean, changing out a drive unit isn't that difficult from electric to, you know, I mean, Yes, there's challenges, but for the most part, um, you know, they're as forward thinking as any company I think there is right now because they understand with emissions, with elect, you know, like the drive for electrical powered vehicles or alternatively powered vehicles, all these things coming down the pipe 
um, you either evolve or you're going to struggle. I mean, being inside the industry and looking at our struggles now with Euro 5 emissions, Euro 5 sound, all these things coming down the pipe are going to make it tougher and tougher and tougher for a combustion engine motorcycle to continue forward. Um, with states like or like California saying, you know, by by 2035, we'll have no combustion engines on our highways and now pushing the president to say the same thing, right? So there there is a drive going on out there and it's a shorter window than I think most of us probably expected. It's really accelerating. And so, um, and we've seen, you know, you can look no further than the reports coming out from the three or four or five emerging electrical motorcycle companies that are happening right now to know there's a transition happening. So, um, Harley's got enough of that tech under their belt. Um, you know, obviously they've built a pretty darn good electric bike that could survive from South America to LA. And, and although there are challenges, I think most of us were surprised to see how durable as a vehicle it was in general for that, that trip. And, um, I think they, uh, they've assembled the team, they've assembled the engineers. There's been a big transition and their engineering departments, they just, I believe, uh, brought forward a chief electronic, chief electronics or chief electrics officer for Harley Davidson now. So there's another big investment on their part to drive the technology forward on that side. Um, every Harley dealer is now going to be required to have a live wire and I believe a, a trained live wire technician. That's not an alternative. You're oh. going to have to have that. So that's going to be demanded by Harley Davidson that that electric motorcycle comes to market. And it's not hard to figure out when you look at that live wire, that that's going to be the big dog. And, and you know, it wouldn't be that hard for them to build the equivalent of a 300 and a 600 type electric motorcycle. And again, stretch that family down to a younger rider. And if you look at what they're doing with Stasix, they've got small Stasix, medium Stasix, and they're going to be working on a big Stasix for older riders. So now they're driving up from the bottom and they're driving down from the top and they're creating a brand that can be a lifelong brand for riders, which hasn't existed before. Typically, you didn't move toward a Harley until either you're kind of renegade-ish and young or you were much older and wanted to just tour. Now, suddenly there's a much broader appeal for that brand, I think, for most consumers. What's Stasix? Stasic is a, a little um, electric battery-driven balance bike. Um, so it was invented by a gentleman who I believe was a factory mechanic for KTM, like the KTM 50 racers and stuff. And he invented it for his kids. And what he essentially did is I think took like an 18 or 24-volt uh, drill battery and put it to a motor that was in a balance bike and gave it a thumb throttle. And it's I've never seen a bigger entry-level drug for young kids <laughs> it's like the big wheel of this generation right and the first time i saw him was at an expo a few years ago and i think it was his kids that were there demoing these things but i mean these things are flying around and they're backing them in like a flat tracker and these were talented riders are jumping them over jumps and i'm thinking God, I hope they build an adult bike like that. <laughs> so, but um, they, you know, Harley bought the brand, I believe, two or three years ago now. And and now you have other brands that are getting co-branded models uh, of Stasic under their umbrella. I believe, I believe KTM has a branded one now, but Harley definitely has Harley branded Stasics in their dealerships. So you're introducing the Harley brand to a five, six, seven-year-old kid all the way up to maybe an 11-year-old type rider at some point who are on this electric 
balance bike branded Harley. So why not put him into a 250 type electric, you know, dirt or street or whatever bike? Why not put him into the next step up from there and keep him in the brand family? So I think, you know, their big picture is really to be able to walk somebody through their entire riding life on different various Harley models and not have them go to a Honda or Yamaha, Suzuki, what have you, right? The last thing I wanted to ask you about was the looks. <laughs> now there has been such a response to the looks of this bike. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm in love with it. You know, I, I'm being honest, but it's very American brutish. <laughs> For one, you know, it's kind of Mad Maxi in certain ways in that I, the curves and the look of it definitely have this Harley feel to it that I find interesting, right? It's, it's got a, it's got a tip of the hat to Harley there, but it's, it's oddly, um, American-ish, you know, it's not that clean, crisp European KTM BMW look. It's not that Honda polish look. It's very brutish in certain ways. You know, it looks like it's just going to go beat up the ground as opposed to the ground beating it up. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know that I'm in love with it, but there's a certain appeal to it in that it is different. And I think part of what we all like riding a motorcycle is when we pull up and people look at us on that bike and think, God, that bike's cool or sexy or, man, you're, I remember when I was at Indian, you know, we brought Indian back from the grave in Gilroy, and we'd pull up to a restaurant or gas station, and everybody would come out and tell us a story about their grandpa, uncle, dad, whatever, that had been on an Indian, and just immediately, like, that is so cool. I'm yeah. glad it's back. And I think pulling up on a Harley adventure bike is just some people's jaws are going to drop and go, wow, I didn't know Harley was building this. And I think it it's going to start a car that was building this type of bike or building this. It's a conversation starter. And I think as riders, you know, we've laughed about this when we're talking about apparel. You know, you want to look good in your apparel. You want people to pay attention. And I think if you're getting an adventure market, and maybe you've ridden a BMW. I hate to say it, but guess what? There's a thousand other views out there on BMWs. There's not so many people on Panameras, and suddenly you're getting that host of attention you want again, like early Corvette buyers on the new mid-engine Corvette, like whatever else, right? And it's a very affordable excitable moment to be different and have something kind of different and cool. So I think there's going to be that element of it that, um, you know, it's that, that oddball intriguing effect that it will have. And it definitely is going to stand out. going down the highway. Nobody's going to think you're on a, you know, nobody's going to think you're riding a Honda down the highway. That's for sure. And that's, that's no disparaging to Honda. It's just, it's, it's uniquely Harley without question. Well, that's an interesting perspective. That that really is, and and certainly, I guess if they'd made something that was a little bit closer to the BMWs or KTM's, they they could have potentially got lost. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's like it's kind of funny. It's like when the the Porsche Panamera came out, where people were like Ford or Porsche, what, right? But when you see me on the highway, I don't know. I mean, they're different, but I think they're pretty cool, and and they just kind of slotted in there. Apparently, they saw a need, and I think Harley does definitely see a need that they're going to have to change the game they're playing and the audience they're talking to. But I hope they get and how to talk to an audience different that you're not going to make me eat your culture. You got to come out and meet me halfway and come have some fun with us. Right. 
I, I would have much rather classic look with a big round headlight, but that's just me, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess we'll see where this goes. Is there anything else that you, that you want to talk about with this, Tim? Um, I, you know, being somebody who is the chairman of the MIC aftermarket committee, um, it's always been difficult in the aftermarket to do much for Harley. I mean, yes, you can build it, but you're not necessarily going to penetrate that store. It's the aftermarket Harley store. I just hope that Harley, by having their agreement with somebody like Rever, is more open to um, understanding that uh, by putting on great brands, you know, like we've talked about uh, IMS foot pegs or, or you know, using soft bags from from anybody out there doing it in the market, et cetera, Wolf, who have you. Um, I think that will actually create more affinity for their brand if they can create some of those partnerships and get them accepted earlier than just having everything HD branded, right? I think I think they got to be open to a little more cooperation with the wider market than they maybe have been. And they'll eventually pull it down to where they're having all those things done for them. But if they're going to build a brand quicker. They got to be able to do things that people are comfortable with, in my opinion, and, and ease into it. They can't just go, hey, we're here, everybody, we're great, come by us. They're going to have to say, hey, we have an option. It's an alternative to what's there, and we're working really hard to build something very, very cool here. Tim, thanks very much. Of course, Jim. Thank you, as always. That was Tim Calhoun in Texas, board member of the Motorcycle Industry Council and VP of Sales for Quinn Design Helmets. that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, there's two things I'd like to ask of you. If you enjoyed the show, we would love it if you could take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes. This is something we should have been asking since the start, but we never did. Those reviews help others find the show. Now, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that. The other thing is if you would consider supporting Adventure Rider Radio, if you're not doing it already. Adventure Rider Radio is built on a model of some ads and then listener support. And we need your support. Anything helps, whether it's a one-time or whether you're becoming one of our patron supporters. It all helps. 
by the way, we started an extra thing um, uh, on Patreon. We get a fair bit of, uh, of requests, fair number of requests to find out more information about Elizabeth and I. So we started offering this new program, this new audio program to our Patreon supporters where you get to learn a little bit more about us um, in general. So anyway, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support to find out more. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Helge Pedersen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 